what does the Outer Space Treaty mean when it talks about resource utilization? What does it mean when it says that we can't appropriate a, a particular piece of land? It's pretty well recognized that there are certain regions of the moon that are extremely valuable, mm-hmm. uh, the poles in particular. The, the, the types of minerals, the, the temperatures, the, the, the resources there are, are incredibly generous. The water is present, all that kind of stuff. So what we have is thus a smaller area of a, a new territory that everyone in the world wants to get to. Mm-hmm. So anytime you have that situation, it has the, the high potential for conflict. What if... I mean, let, let's, be, let's be positive. Let's be forward thinking. Mm-hmm. Saying, the United States gets there first. Great. We, we get there. We, we establish our bases. Let's say we even start mining the surface. We start gathering up resources. We prepare the soil for all the things that we want to get out of it, right? Yeah, we're, we're getting it all prepped up. Well, if we can't appropriate that prepped area that we've gotten mm-hmm. to the perfect condition of being able to mine, and China, Russia, it, you know, you name the actor, arrives right in the nick of time and they start mining the same area. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Is there anything that we can do to stop that? He's Bryant. I'm Jason. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. This is Bryant Baker. He is a fellow who I've known for a little while. Uh, he put a post up saying, hey, I'm looking for mentors in the space industry. And I said, hey, so am I. We should get on a call. And uh, he works with the Air Force. So there's been an approval process. It's taken a little while. But uh, I wanted him on because he was the first space lawyer I ever met. And uh, first of all, you go, wow, that's a thing. And as, and as we know, I've talked with Christopher Johnson, Laura Montgomery, and one or two others. The, the episodes have not come out yet as of recording this. But uh, and so it's great to have you on as a space lawyer because you have the perspective. And every, every lawyer's perspective is a little different on these interpretive things like what about space mining and that? And we're going to explore some of these issues here. So uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you, though, Bryant, was how did you get into space law as a career? It's not a normal thing. There aren't a mm. whole bunch of you guys running around and ladies right, you know, into this. Right. And, and I was hoping maybe some young person might hear your story and go, oh, wow, I didn't know you could do that. I'm going to try that out myself. Yeah, so my story is actually a, a little bit odd, uh, I would say. Um, so uh, I, I was one of those bright-eyed kids who, you know, from ages seven up, uh, I was absolutely 100% going to be an astronaut when I grew up. Uh, uh, that was the plan all the way along. I actually got started in school uh, in engineering, um, uh, you know, studying all the math and science and all that kind of stuff, but uh, decided to switch gears halfway through because I realized that the, as much as I loved it, the, the science, the math, the, uh, all of that part of it just wasn't, just wasn't my strength. Um, I, I realized that I was a lot more attracted by the, the human stories. I was a lot more attracted by the policies, the idea of space than I was necessarily about uh, the, the process of going about creating that technology, which was a little bit of a disappointment in me because I, I, uh, I, I, like I said, for a long time, I figured that that's who I was and I had to kind of rediscover myself a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, so uh, it kind of, I guess you could say I set that pathway aside for me. 
uh, and ended up deciding to go to law school. And it was actually while in law school, uh, I was going through the, the, the list of courses to register for. And lo and behold, right on that list, you know, on page whatever, 37 or whatever it happened to be, there's a class taught on space law. Mm. And this is the first time that I, I realized, oh my goodness, there is a such thing as space law. I mean, it, who, who would have even thought of something like that? It had never, for one reason or another, it just had never even crossed my mind. So anyway, uh, signed up for this course and, and just absolutely loved it. Mm. Uh, um, it was really from that moment on that I uh, got involved as much as I possibly could in terms of uh, joining organizations, the uh, ABA forum on space law. Uh, I was with uh, a couple of different nonprofit organizations as a volunteer, desperately reaching out right. for anybody who is willing to, to take on an inexperienced but uh, enthusiastic uh, young man living in DC at the time. Um, and, you know, I was able to do a lot of really great things, but felt pretty unsatisfied with, uh, the level of, of involvement that I was able to obtain, especially as someone who, you know, I, I was married, I had kids, uh, you know, working as a volunteer all the time just wasn't an option for me. So uh, it, it, at any rate, I actually decided to take a break from the law and, uh, you know, I did some brainstorming and thought, okay, well, who has access to rockets? Who has access to, to space? Who's involved with this? Well, the big players are NASA and Department of Defense. Well, I applied much times to NASA, that wasn't working out, so I thought, well, next best thing, Air Force. I'm gonna join the Air Force. Uh, applied for it and was lucky enough to get picked up there, not as an attorney, but actually as uh, a maintenance officer in the uh, ICBM, and at the time, space uh, sectors of the Air Force. But uh, after a couple, so I got picked up in there, went through basic training, uh, was a part of that uh, incredibly exciting industry for about a year and a half when I had a very wonderful additional mentor, uh, you know, someone who really has their eyes on helping out others like yourself when you reached out to me, just that kind of really wonderful personality is a, is a, a commander of mine who uh, brought me into his office and just kind of had that heart to heart with me of, listen, Brian, what are you doing here? What, what is this? You're, you've got a law degree, you have a, a license to practice. Why are you a maintainer? And I explained to him my love of space, my desire to get involved with that. Um, and he essentially said, you're just not going to get there. We need to get you over in the legal office. And uh, through a, a series of additional mentors and and people really believing in me and pushing me in the right directions and everything. I was, I was lucky enough uh, to be able to switch over to be uh, a member of the JAG, uh, mm -hmm. which is where I'm at right now. And uh, just, it, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to, to be a part of that. And I wouldn't be here without incredibly great mentors. So that, that says a lot for the people in this industry and people I've had the pleasure of interacting with. Um, I, I think it's important to note uh, uh, throughout our conversation here today, um, like I said, uh, I'm still currently an attorney for the Air Force as a JAG, but all the stuff that I say, the opinions that I share, everything, that those are only my opinions. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not necessarily that of the Department of Defense or the Air Force or anything like that. But I've been immensely blessed to be able to be a part of a really exciting endeavor. Uh, first in, in North Dakota as part of the ICBM. Uh, wing that's out there 
um, to be an attorney supporting that effort. And then now, just recently, uh, moving down to, uh, to Florida, to Patrick Air Force Base in Cape Canaveral and, and being a part of uh, sort of the legal needs that we take care of down there. Well, that is awesome. So there's, there are some identity questions of who do I want to be and, and what are my skill sets here and my talents and uh, finding getting involved, right? The nitty gritty yeah. of it and really not yeah. just dreaming about it, but getting involved and finding, okay, this path, maybe not the right one. And then running into some really great people who actually gave a damn about Right. other people wow <laughs> we don't right. we 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 like to say oh wow isn't that wonderful but it's not as common as as i wish it would be anyway uh, most young people don't even think about career mentorship i don't think or getting it and uh, i wish people had been around to take interest in in my career as a young man right. you know so that's that's awesome that you found those folks and they found you as well um but i think yeah. you were consistently putting yourself into position as well to be found. You weren't just sitting back going, I hope somebody notices me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I hope this is a, a common theme throughout our conversation here mm. today, but I think it, if, I, I don't think I did anything special, mm -hmm. but uh, one thing that I did do and that I continue to do and uh, I, I hold very near and dear to my heart is not being shy about my intentions. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know, day, day one of talking to Air Force recruiter, I was telling him how, you know, I'm, I'm here to get into the space industry. I'm here to make a difference uh, for the future of mankind's involvement in space. Uh, day one of showing up to my unit on, mm -hmm. on the first day as a member of the Air Force, I am here in order to gain experience to be able to, to make a, a massive uh, contribution to space. Mm -hmm. And so there was no mystery for anybody. And, and my, I have, I'll admit that I have been very, very lucky, but my experience has been uh, when people are clear about what your desires and goals are, it just seems like the, the kindness and, and the, the generosity of, of people just come from all over the place. And that continues to be true for, mm -hmm. for me. I feel very, very lucky. And I, I continue to hope to be some sort of help to, to those around me as, as I feel like that I've been incredibly blessed with those around me. Mm -hmm. Well, let's jump right into the space law part of things. Uh, mm -hmm. It's evolving. It's, it, you know, not very clear, right? They're, they're figuring yeah. stuff out. Uh, and there's so many different players in, in this field. What stands out to you as most important right now in space law? Well, it's an interesting question because I, I think, the real answer is it depends on what you're interested in. Mm. You know, uh, for, for me, uh, being a member of the, uh, of the military, being involved with all of that, a lot of the big important questions that, that I have in my mind are how are we going to define the military's role in space? Mm. You know, is there going to be a role for the military in space? I, the answer seems to be pretty substantially yes. Uh, um, arguably speaking, and I'm certainly in this camp that argues this, but I think that the military has had a place in space since day one. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, regardless of the interpretations that you add on to the Outer Space Treaty and its call for space to be only used for peaceful purposes, I think a role for the military has always been a contemplated part of that peaceful, purposeful use of space. Um, however, you know, as you know, with the, the recent uh, calls that, 
you know, space is now recognized uh, war fighting domain mm. uh, and, and the, the recent establishment of the space force. Um, I, I think that we are going to see uh, an increase of activity in space, both in the private sector as well as uh, for Department of Defense and military. And there's a lot of definitions that, that simply have not been established, uh, to my knowledge, in space, including what is an act of aggression? Uh, what mm. is something that is worthy of being labeled something worthy to go, over, go to war over? Uh, uh, these are very important questions that I don't think that we have clear answers to. So, so that's something I'm very interested in. However, you know, the next guy down, uh, it, maybe their primary concern right now is, well, what about the overcrowding of orbits, both with orbital debris as well as purposefully with these new mega constellations? Mm -hmm. There is a, a legitimate concern that the creation of these mega constellations is calling into question a certain nation or a certain organization's ability to claim territory in space. Uh, I don't think that we're quite to that level right now, but when you look at the numbers that are being contemplated for both SpaceX's uh, mega constellation and then being followed up by several other organizations' mega constellations, that's a, that's a legitimate concern. Uh, what I think is the, one of the most exciting questions that are fields that's out there right now is how are we going to treat um uh, resources mm -hmm. uh, resource collection on the moon we're moving more and more towards the side of well we think that it's completely legitimate to collect these resources to own these resources uh, kind of going back to the military slant that i have that begs the question of okay well if an organization can then go to the moon extract resources and then start bringing them back. What happens if another country or another entity tries to intercept those resources? Mm -hmm. Do, does the military step in? Can we step in? Can the United States defend mm -hmm. the ownership rights of one of its citizens? And how is that not then an appropriative act mm -hmm. over mm -hmm. that territory or those resources? This is all very far reaching, but I, I guess my point is um, kind of going to what we were talking about, having those open lanes of communication. There's a lot of things that are very exciting happening right now in, in the field of space law. And I think that they're all important, but they're really down to, okay, what are you as an organization or as a person interested in? What are you trying to accomplish? I think that is the most important okay. thing happening very, in space law. Right very now. cool. What do you think, if we were to hit the fast forward button and, and be 10 years in the future, what do you think they'll be worrying about then? What do you think we'll be worrying about then? I, so I think uh, this might be a little bit um, overly optimistic. Uh, as we know, in space, mm -hmm. timelines are all, mm -hmm. always tend to be a little bit overly optimistic. Right. But I would hope that in 10 years' time um, that we will have both returns to the moon and begun to set up a more consistent uh, um, presence on the moon and use of the moon. Start that process of resource extraction and utilization. I think it'll start very slow at first. Mm. I think it'll be largely exploratory. Um, but I think that if we can begin that process, then like any other first steps in an industry, it'll begin to blossom uh, and 
you know, a lot of thought, a lot of science has gone into exactly what is up there and uh, uh, things that people are trying to do um, with, with resources, whether it's uh, bring them back, whether it's just using them in situ. Uh, I'm, I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with all of these different kinds of steps, but it's really going to call into question again, okay, what does the Outer Space Treaty mean when it talks about users utilization? What does it mean when it says that we can't appropriate a, a particular piece of land? Um, one thing that I'm particularly interested in will be, so it's pretty well recognized that there are certain regions of the moon that are extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, the poles in particular, the, the, the types of minerals, the, the temperatures, the, the, the resources there are, are incredibly generous. The water is present, all that kind of stuff. So what we have is thus a smaller area of a, a new territory that everyone in the world wants to get to. Mm -hmm. So anytime you have that situation, it has the, the high potential for conflict. What if, I mean, let, let's, be, let's be positive, let's be forward thinking, mm -hmm. the United States gets there first. Great. We, we get there, we, we establish our bases. Let's say we even start mining the surface. We start gathering up resources. We prepare the soil for all the things that we want to get out of it, right? Yeah, we're, we're getting it all prepped up. Well, if we can't appropriate that prepped area that we've gotten mm. to the perfect condition of being able to mine and China, Russia, it, you know, you name the actor arrives right in the nick of time and they start mining the same area. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Is there anything that we can do to stop that? Um, I, this is a little bit further out than yeah. 10 years, hopefully, but, but I mean, these are really serious uh, things that we're going to have to deal with eventually. And as of right now, there are thousands of pages of opinion of what maybe will happen or maybe should happen, but there are no answers as to what will happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it gets, it gets into conflict very, very quickly. So I'm going to move to this question then, which is about communication. There are all these different actors, policymakers, operators, lawmakers, and that, how, how can they interact so that, that there's more of a buffer against going straight to punching each other in space? So what, what I strongly believe is that space is an industry that is, that is so large uh, and so complicated that no one particular sector is going to know the whole story of what they're talking about. Uh, one thing that I really like about uh, space law, one thing I'm very interested in as a young, still putting on his first 10 years as an attorney uh, guy, is that so much of the law is going through what the rules are, okay? Whereas in space, particularly in international space, it's a little bit more black and white in, in uh, national regulation, uh, obviously. I, I saw that you had a great conversation with Laura Montgomery, who, who I also consider a mentor, is incredibly knowledgeable about that sort of national regulatory piece. Uh, th there's a few more answers there. But when it comes to our interaction with international uh, parties, with uh, other states on how we're going to treat uh, space and how we're going to treat the moon and other celestial bodies. 
the question of what should we do is far more rev- relevant than what can we do because mm. the list of things what can we do is incredibly wide but what should we do what will maintain peace what will be for the the most benefit to our nation and to other nations these are very important pieces and i don't think i, I was just having a conversation today um, with with somebody who's worked in the the space industry with the Air Force for the last six seven years, and it became incredibly clear that I, as an attorney uh, who've been studying this stuff for eight plus years with passion and love and joy and all the stuff that you get from being able to participate in something you really love, there's so much that I don't know that is happening right now, um, and there and that is a I'm required or I should be required to try to seek more information to be able to understand it better. You on the business side, and this is one of the things that I appreciated so much about you reaching out to me a couple months ago when you did uh, to begin a conversation between the two of us. You know so much about the, the administration, the business side of things, things that if I'm trying to make recommendations about what we should do, if I don't know that, if I don't have an understanding of that, I'm giving bad advice as a counselor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's just unacceptable. I think, so to answer your question, I think the first step that we must take in this is recognizing that no one piece of the puzzle has got the full story. Um, as, as, as value added as the engineer is, who's been in you know, his or her entire career, um, she, she's, she, no one person has the bandwidth to, to understand all of that engineering stuff and mm-hmm. be able to handle all of the, the politics and the policy and the business and administration. Uh, uh, it, it, you know, the, the business side is very important for handling that administration and vital for being able to get the job done Maybe they don't have the bandwidth to, to understand the second, third, and fourth tier uh, results of those recommendations. And that's where the, you know, the lawyers, the, pol- the policymakers, the politickers can step in and really uh, add value. So that's why, so my personal philosophy is anytime I think I'm coming close to forming a conclusion, this is what I think we should be doing in space. This is what I think that rocket launch companies should be doing. This is what I think the Air Force should be doing. This is what I think the United States should be doing. It, any of these types of decisions. I always try to restart it with, okay, what is, it, what is the question that I can ask to those that I'm connected with, to those who I interact with, that can help me understand why I might be wrong? Um, and kind of going back to what we were talking about before, I've been incredibly blessed and humbled many times to, to uh, discover, yeah, no, I, I often am wrong. Or at the very least, I'm right, but maybe I understand why I might be right for, for better reasons than I had previously, because I had not taken all of these steps into consideration. So that open dialogue that I think is uh, very important for many different organizations, both on the business and the government side, I think is incredibly vital. And anytime I see that happening, whether it be with conferences, whether it be uh, calls for proposals, anything else, I I applaud all of those efforts because I think that is exactly what we need. The only thing that's left untested for a lot of these are, okay, are we actually listening or is this just a way of us showing that we're listening? Right. As long as we're not all shouting at each other. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. It's it's so easy to get into that. Yeah. I, I made the choice to be a generalist. 
and I go around booking shows like this and, and talking to a lot of people and hopefully hearing what they're saying and that, and it is, it is tough. I mean, I hear people tell me every day, it's so hard to keep track of everything. And, uh, and I went, well, it's easy. You just do what I do. And then I realized, Oh, that's a full-time job in addition to running the company. So, and it's, it's tiring. I mean, we are meeting after eight o'clock right now and uh, yeah. my time anyway. And after seven years, so it's the evening folks. Uh, and, and I'm glad that Brian has made time to, to talk to me today. You can't afford to be second best. You need to be first. And that requires speed. Now, if you're thinking that growth is supposed to be slow and steady, frankly, the way I was taught back in the 90s in the operations management and business administration programs, you are too slow. We have to adapt. And in space, it's no different than anywhere else. People like to think they're special in space, and it is fun, all the stuff we get to work on, but business is business. The fundamentals nowadays are conservative growth is not good. You need to run as fast as you can and risk outstripping your supply lines, which means in our world, using up the capital that we've got. That's a risk, but there is no prize for second place. There certainly is no prize for third. If you want to scale operationally fast, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. We are the process experts for scaling fast. Now back to the interview. So let's dig into the, the legalities of space mining with your interpretation, your spin on it a little bit more. What's, what's the problem and, and what's the potential solution here? Well, I, I think I agree with the... Um, the solution that has been put into into law, uh, at least in America, and, and now following uh, you know a couple of other countries that have decided, you know what, if a private actor were to go to the moon or an asteroid or something else, and they were to extract resources and start bringing them back, uh, we've decided that's not appropriation. We'll we'll recognize those claims for that extraction of resources. Mm. I think that makes sense. It's based uh, somewhat on the precedent of when the Apollo missions went to the moon. Um, they landed on the moon. They gathered up samples, uh, a couple hundred pounds of rocks, and brought them back. Uh, and uh, NASA and a few other actors now own those, those materials, and nobody really complained about it. I think that makes sense. I think that's okay. The, the age-old question, I remember when I was in my undergrad, I was in a, a science course, and I had a professor who was really great. He told us that the key question to always ask whenever you're investigating something, to, uh, something new is to ask how much. Hmm. Sure, something might be true, but how much? To what extent? And I think that's the major key uh, question in this uh, when it comes to extraction of resources on the moon is, okay, they can extract resources. How many resources? How big of an asteroid mm -hmm. can any one company sort of claim? How big until it becomes a mm -hmm. celestial body? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not even just a you know, floating collection of resources, but now we're seeing it as, you know, if, if they land on an asteroid that's as big as the, as the moon or something like that, or close to the size of the moon, is that now celestial body and that's not a, a collection of resources anymore? Who knows? No one's done it yet. We, the, the answer really right now is we'll see. Mm -hmm. Um, and going back to my example before, what happens if one person gets there first, but then somebody else shows up mm -hmm. and wants to extract this, similar resources from the same area? Is that, in fact, taking advantage of the infrastructure that was put there mm -hmm. in the first place by the first actor? 
do they have a claim? Can they, can they say, don't do that? Now, under Article 9 obvious, of the Unrestricted Treaty, obviously, uh, we can argue that if I were to show up at the last minute and start extracting resources that you had prepared that I'm adversely affecting, <laughs> that I'm, I'm messing with your abilities, is, is that enough for us to internationally come to an agreement that you shouldn't do that? Maybe. I would hope so. But this is what's so exciting about space is that until somebody does it, until it mm. happens, we don't know. It's, it's an open question. Uh, and uh, I, I, I have a lot of acquaintances and people that I've talked to about these sorts of issues. And they say, well, we think we know. Uh, we have a strong basis for thinking that, that we wouldn't do that because obviously, I mean, we wouldn't want to do that to China because then they could do that to us. And that's a strong mm. argument, I think. But as strong as an argument as it is, it's still just an argument. And as we've seen mm. with things like missile tests, uh, anti-satellite launches and stuff like that, mm. as strong of an argument as we might have, that doesn't mean someone's not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And there's always escalation uh, to prove that you're bigger and badder. <laughs> and you get Tsar Bomba nuclear bombs <laughs> being tested. So this yeah. is interesting because if you fly a, a craft to a location, extract something, and then leave, that's okay. But to start extracting water, other resources from a polar area on the moon, it's going to take longer. You've got to land something. You've got to get a, a radiation-shielded habitat. Maybe you can bury a spaceship, but sure. now we've got a problem <laughs> because you're not leaving at that point, right? You've created a, a habitat. It's underground. It's, it's in the thing, and mm -hmm. it's not made to depart later on. And, and so now we're in that uh, possession sort of situation, which supposedly we're not legally allowed to do. Well, maybe, maybe not. I think you bring up a good point, mm -hmm. and it's one that I shared for a long time uh, with regards to, okay, what is the definition of appropriation with regards to a presence in space? Mm -hmm. I think the counter-argument, and one that I have come to think is a little bit closer to the, the true and appropriate uh, uh, definition of that, is that it does not include, at the very least, it does not include a enclosed container mm -hmm. um, that we send somewhere. Uh, I think an excellent example is any sort of spaceship, that the International Space Station, we own everything in that craft. And mm -hmm. even though we have stuck it in space, mm -hmm. uh, that does not change. We're still not trying to claim ownership over that space that it happens to be in. So if someone were to fly a craft to the moon and bury it, let's say. Um, I, I, I don't see that as being a challenge to the definition of appropriation. However, it also says in the Outer Space Treaty that if someone were to establish such uh, a station uh, on the moon, a moon base of some mm -hmm. sort, that other nations should be allowed to come and visit that, uh. moon, that moon base, that moon station. Are we going to be super happy about that when China comes knocking on the door and say, hey, let us in? Uh, maybe. According to international agreement, we're supposed to say, come on in. Uh, but is that the way that it's going to work out? 
I, I don't know. I, we're, we've got very interesting times ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And that enclosure is part of the country or part of the company that is that is sent it there, is it not? That's right. That's right. So. Now, <laughs> it, it does it does ask the, the the very interesting question though of okay, so it's pretty safe to say that if we send a craft and bury it, then that's not appropriation, and that's mm -hmm. fine. But what if we get rid of the craft? What if we, we dig a, a giant hole and, and build an in-situ location on the moon right there? Is mm -hmm. that appropriation? I, I think we're certainly getting closer to mm -hmm. appropriation, but it, there we have a, another decision to make. Uh, on the one hand, do we stick to the more, uh, I, I don't know, strict perhaps interpretation of what appropriation means? Or do we give it a little bit more fuzzy room and say that it doesn't actually equate to appropriation? We just happen to get there first and we're living here. Can we turn people away? Can we not mm -hmm. turn people away? How big until that becomes a really big problem, you know? Right. Uh, and they were talking about this stuff back in 1968 with 2001 A Space Odyssey. The reason they wouldn't let the Russians in, the Soviets at the time, they came up with a BS cover story of a plague or something. <laughs> and so you can't go there. We know this is going to blow back on us and they're going to get upset about it. But uh, that's right. we'll let it go. Well, and, so This, is, this well, idea has those... been around for a while. Well, go you're, ahead. You're absolutely right. Well, and a lot of those concerns that were around back there hmm. i think are starting to uh uh become really big concerns if they ever stopped being uh today i think that uh, real concerns of okay is this going is the moon going to turn into the next land grab mm -hmm. do we have do we have to be concerned about you know, how many funds how much resources are going to be poured into getting to the moon first or ahead of another nation um, for purposes of trying to keep them out. And because the one thing that does seem relatively clear about the intent of the Outer Space Treaty and the environment with which it was signed and ratified by the United States and all these nations is that the intent is to keep wars from happening, hmm. to prevent major armed conflict. And if we start to interpret the Outer Space Treaty in such a way that we say, oh, no, it's okay until somebody pulls a gun out, then, then maybe we're not doing the language justice. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, I mean, it's not too difficult to see problems occurring with, uh, okay, we're going to take a spaceship to the moon, we're going to land it, we're going to bury it, and then we're going to disassemble it as we create caverns underneath and create a habitat down there using those materials that we brought with gotcha. us. And, and hmm. now I, I'm, I'm thinking back also to uh, the exploitation of uh, gold and other, other precious metals in the, in the Spanish era, the conquistador era. Um, mm -hmm. I think the, the Pope, first of all, divided the world between the Portuguese and the, the Spanish. <laughs> and then uh, they, I can remember my history 12 teacher, think about how long ago that was, <laughs> joking around a little bit and saying how trade was, uh, there had been given some sort of restriction that you could only have so many boats a year taking uh, resources away from the new world back to the old. And so the Spanish would just build bigger and bigger and bigger ships. And then finally they decided, oh, wait, we'll just have one ship that stays there in the New World all the time. And all these other ships, it'll just be a pass-through. 
and they'll have other ships come up to it. And so we're following the letter of the law here, you know, but uh, mm -hmm. we're still doing what I want. And so I, I begin to think down that road and get a little concerned about, okay, how much uh, edge casing are we going to start doing here as, as this goes on? So, hmm. So some work really has to be done on this dialogue, uh, actual listening, and, and not having this... Uh, what people will joke about the extroverts in the networking after hours events where you get all these uh, folks shouting at each other over a couple beers and nobody actually listening. So uh, do you have any suggestions or ideas about avoiding that situation? I think the, the, in my experience, the most important thing to do uh, is, is, and this is for any industry, certainly mm -hmm. the, the law included, but is to understand that we're all still students. Now, now that's that's very easy for for me. I'm, mm -hmm. Like like I've said, I'm still early in <laughs> yeah. my career. Uh, I'm still getting started, and and I I think it's fair for any of your listeners who are listening to all the stuff that I'm talking about and saying, I don't believe that. That's not <laughs> true. I remember this case. I remember this opinion that says that Brian is full of baloney, and I will 100% own up to that. Um, because, like I said none of these things have been tested. None of these things are solidified yet. So, so the answers are still coming, but if we start going into these things thinking, Oh no, no, I've got the answer. My way of thinking is the only possible way to interpret this situation. My should is the only, the only right should. I think you're doing yourself a disservice. That doesn't mean that we don't really try to sell the vision that we have uh, mm -hmm. to bring to the table to the future because somebody's vision is going to work out and and boy i hope that it's the right vision <laughs> um but if you but i i, I get a little twingy I, I get a little uh concerned when i start hearing that no, no no this this vision this particular mission this way of doing things is the the only other way everything else mm -hmm. is highway that's troublesome okay well said. Uh, fortunately, I guess I can say in the defense of the community, everybody I've met so far has been quite reasonable and not, uh, not too high strung. <laughs> or, <laughs> even if they do, they, they know their stuff in their area, but they're quite willing to admit, man, this is wild west out here and, and we need to tread lightly. So let's wrap up with a question here. What's your dream job with space law? Assuming somebody comes in tomorrow and says, hey, you can make your own job uh, or if somebody waves a magic wand. What does that look like? You know, that, that is a very good question. Um, I think the answer to that, I'm still trying to formulate in my mind. One of the uh, challenges that I have uh, in, the in the position that I'm incredibly blessed to have is making this is trying to formulate what the future looks like for mm. me. Um, I think my dream job, whether as a member of the Department of Defense, Department of State, uh, uh, working for Congress, uh, some some sort of amalgamation of all of those things, a position in which I could really add value and perspective for decision makers that are going to start writing the laws of space for me. Like I said, I, I don't think that those laws are going to be written by lawyers. Hmm. I think they're going to be written by operators. They're going to be written by businesses. 
they're going to be written by uh, nation leaders. My biggest concern is do these amazing women and men understand the ramifications? Do they understand the decisions that they'll be making by being the first, seconds, and thirds out into space? If I could have a part in helping them understand those things and helping them make those correct choices, I would consider myself a very blessed human being. That, that's, a, that's a life well lived for me. Very cool. Very cool. The wise counsel. <laughs> so, Hopefully. <laughs> Bryant Baker, JAG with the Air Force right now, former missile man uh, and uh, space lawyer. If people want to get in touch with you, and I'm sure you want to get uh, in touch with them because you do like dialogue. And I, I know uh, Bryant likes to post on his LinkedIn profile. He'll pop up with a question that's, you know, this long. And, <laughs> and then post and say, what, just like you said earlier, right? You come up with this, hey, I've developed an opinion to this point. Uh, am I crazy or not? <laughs> right? Or have I missed anything? Uh, what, what is the best way to, to reach you? So uh, I'm on most of the social media pages. Uh, LinkedIn t tends to be the one that I am uh, most active on, um, just under uh, Bryant Baker, and you'll find me. Uh, I also have a Facebook page, Bryant A.M. Baker, uh, as well as Twitter, Bryant A.M. Baker. Um, all of those places are good places to find me. And, and like I said, Jason, I love interacting with people. I love getting different perspectives, even ones that are wildly different than my own. I've been told that I'm crazy more times than, than I can say, but I learn something from it every time. Right. Fantastic. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation and I hope that we've given uh, some younger folks uh, uh, some ideas and also let uh, some of the more experienced folks know that, hey, people out there are really listening. Thanks for being here, Brian. Thanks so much, Jason. I appreciate it. Hey, this is Jason Kanigan, the host of the Cold Star Project and the founder of Cold Star Technologies. I've decided to do something new. I've started doing daily update videos on who I met and what I learned the previous day in the space field. And it's a great sort of follow me thing. You can learn what I learn. I'm meeting a heck of a lot of people and learning a lot of things really fast. And the space field is really disparate. There are tons of nooks and crannies to go into and explore from legal, operational, you know, regulatory, compliance and gosh the end customer who would have thought about that right so you can sign up for this if you go to coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring the mission we're on then you can sign up and in your email you will get a daily notification that the new video has been posted I'm also thinking about doing some branded mini courses and summarizing papers as uh, I'm able to. So those will be some goodies that are in there as well. So if you're interested in that, go to coldstartech.com msb and join us on the mission to make space boring.